Oh, did you hear the one about the uh, the librarian and the newspaper reporter? Uh, I don't know any jokes. I'm from Seattle. My gosh. I have a joke. Um, and I was teaching once um, to a, gr- a group of seniors. We were t- it was a class in humor um, to seniors. And, and most of them were um, from Ballard. And this is the joke they loved the most. I mean, people fell off their chair. We had to tell it every, every week because people just loved it. And it was, um, did you hear about the Norwegian man who loved his wife so much he almost told her? <laughs> I mean, they just loved that. They just thought that was the best. Hi, I'm Nancy Pearl, and I'm at the Bryant Corner Cafe with Steve Scher and a group of readers. Today we're talking about our favorite armchair travel books, or an armchair travel book that we have enjoyed reading. And um, Are you going to define armchair travel book? Armchair travel books are books that you sit in your very comfortable living room and you can go anywhere that you want to go via somebody else's adventure or somebody else's account of what they've done. Well, I wrote a book filled with books about armchair travel. So I am a huge reader of armchair travel because I am not a fa- because I am not a fan of of traveling. I'd much prefer to just stay home and walk and come to um, the Bryant Corner Cafe for breakfast, etc. But I, I but I and so I love reading about these and I had all these books in my head and uh, Sasquatch Books said, why don't you do a book about travel literature? And so I did one called Book Lust to Go. And the best thing is, not the best thing, but a fun thing is the subtitle, Recommended Reading for Travelers, Vagabonds, and Dreamers. So what, what qualifies a book to be an armchair travel book? Because I like to read any book and imagine myself in that place. Well, an armchair travel book is an account of a trip somewhere. So it's different than, I mean, you could argue that a historical novel is an armchair travel book because you're going back to the you know, reign of Henry VIII, for example, in, in um, Mysteries or Anne Boleyn. But if it's an account of somebody going somewhere and doing something, whether it's bicycling from Ireland to India, as Dervla Murphy did, um, in, in a wonderful book, or um, whether it's a car trip from, uh, from, let's see, from Cairo to Cape Town, which many people have done and written, or it could be a walk on the Appalachian Trail, Bill Bryson, we know that one. So there's tons and tons of very entertaining and, and, and um, really informative and uh, you know, dare I say, educational books about uh, people's travels. By the way, about to be a movie with Robert Redford and Nick Nolte, A Walk in the Woods. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. So it just came. It's just coming out. So what's your what's your you know most recent uh, excursion via literature? Oh, I. Um, I recently read an old, an older title written by 
the writer who we know now as um, Jan Morris, but in the beginning of her career when she was a newspaper reporter and um, an indefatigable traveler, she was James Morris. And she and James Morris was at that time was the reporter who traveled with the first attempt to conquer Everest the same year that Queen, the first British, successful British attempt to reach the summit of, of Mount Everest, the same year that Elizabeth II had her coronation. And so the book is called Coronation Climb. And um, I, I, I'll read anything that Jan Morris writes or wrote. So that was an easy one for me to pick up. And plus I love I mean, I think reading about the conquering of Everest is just so fascinating. And the first one that I read, I think, is probably one that a lot of people, was the first one a lot of people read, which was Into Thin Air, the John Krakauer. And once I read that, I, I found every, tried to find as much else as I could, other books. But I just happened upon the James Morris book, um, and I don't even know where I found it where I discovered it and then checked it out of the library. Boy, into thin air, a very um, a high perch and wobbly armchair travel, because that book takes you right up to the top yes, in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, it does, and down to the depths. All right, so people brought books, so I'm going to go around and ask, ask about these books. Robin. Um, I brought uh, Into the Heart of uh, Borneo by Redmond O'Hanlon, and he traveled... Uh, in the early 80s with poet James Fenton uh, into a remote area of uh, Borneo. But this book is hilarious. Uh, O'Hanlon's super literate. He's a, a naturalist and writes for the London Review of Books. I read that book. That book sounded like a hellish trip. Yeah, and it's uh, it has a slapstick side of it, too, and they meet all kinds of great characters. So it's really a wonderful travel book into a place that most of us, like me, don't have much awareness of. You read this, Nancy. I what, did. What'd you, what would you follow that book with? Well, I, I think Robin made the point that there's, there's some similarity, not in where they are, but their kind of approach to the whole notion of travel and traveling rough and doing it even though you are out of shape, just trying to do it. So, I mean, Bill Bryson, would be another person that I would suggest. But I would read the rest of the Redmond O'Hanlon books because he just never stops. And I think that the good thing about books like this is that there's no way that you would want to replicate his trip to Borneo. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, when he, I mean, he talks about just, on, there's one section in here where he, ta where he talks about everything that could possibly that could possibly go wrong. So, um, oh, okay, here it is. Powerful as your scholarly instincts may be, there is no matching the strength of that irrational desire to find a means of keeping your head upon your shoulders, of retaining your frontal appendage in its accustomed place, <laughs> of barring 1,700 different species of parasitic worm from your bloodstream, and Waggler's pit viper from just anywhere, of removing small black wild boar ticks from your crutch with minimum discomfort, you do it with cellotape, 
of declining to wear a globulating necklace of leeches all day long, of sidestepping amoebic and bacillary dysentery, yellow and black water and dengue fevers, malaria, cholera, typhoid, rabies, hepatitis, tuberculosis, and the crocodile. Thumbs in its eyes, if you have time, they say. <laughs> I mean, who in their right mind would do that? But it is so much fun to read. Well, I remember reading him and thinking that he had actually taken home some of those parasites and some of his, some of the pain of it, because he seemed like a wild-eyed man. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I like Laura that here we'll go from the very exotic to the most close in for Seattle anyways. Yeah. What's this book? I brought Art in Seattle's Public Places, so I kind of brought it closer to home. And I've had this book for a long time, and it, it is a little outdated now. It was written in the early 90s, but what I liked about it, I, I grew up in Seattle and I know the city pretty well, but it took me to neighborhoods to learn about stuff that I've driven by tons of times and never really noticed or took the time to understand why it was commissioned, who did it, you know, what's the history behind it. And it takes you on walking tours of neighborhoods and past all the art in those neighborhoods. So I just, I just thought it was a really great book and gave me a whole different look on some of the neighborhoods that I thought I knew. Now, Nancy, Nancy asked an interesting question. Are some of the pieces of art in this book no longer standing? I imagine so, because some of those neighborhoods have been changed so dramatically over the years that I, I imagine so, but I, I might have to go check that out. I'm Dina, and um, I sort of took it a little wrong where any place where you travel to in your mind would work. Judge D Mysteries set in, I think, the 8th or 9th century in China. Traditional mysteries were three mysteries in one, and he based it on that, and the judge was always traveling, and it's a fascinating way to learn about China in that time. Let me just spell the author's name. It's Robert Van Gulick, G-U-L-I-K. And sometimes the library puts Van Gulick together, and sometimes it separates it. So when was he writing? In the 40s. Right. And the books are amazing. I have them. But uh, I went to Cambodia and Laos a year and a half ago, and then northern North Vietnam. But before I went, I found some books on Laos that were fiction. And I've continued to read them since then. The first one's called The Coroner's Lunch by Colin Cotterell, C-O-T-T-E-R-I-L-L. -L. And he worked for, I think, a UN agency in the 90s in uh, Laos and in that area. And the, the setting of these books is in the starting 1976, where the revolution took over, the change of government, and the people who were socialists all of a sudden found that they had to run a government. And he says things don't really, didn't really change in the 1990s when he went there. So he's telling these stories, and you really get a feel for the people, for the country. And after coming back from Laos, which I loved, I really learned to appreciate it. Does that qualify as, as armchair travel, even though it's fiction? Well, we, I mean, there's a whole section, there's a whole Dewey number, which is armchair, you know, which we regard as like armchair adventure, which is like climbing Mount Everest or going down the, the um, Colorado rapids and things like that. So, but, but, you know, as I said, there's, I always felt that reading fiction takes you places. Tom? And uh, I brought, oh, by the way, reading, hearing about the Borneo book, it reminded me, I have a friend who says she loves to travel, and when she travels, she loves to sleep under the stars, five stars. <laughs> so the, the, the book I brought was uh, Desert Queen by uh, Janet Wallach, uh, and it's the, uh, the story of uh, Gertrude Bell, uh, and it basically is about Iraq, 
and how Iraq became a country or a pseudo country, depending on how you want to see it, but it takes place around the era of World War One and the decade or so after when uh, that portion of the Middle East was extracting itself from the Ottoman Empire and the local people and the surrounding peoples and the Western uh, powerful uh, uh, countries were trying to decide what should come of Iraq and Syria and Iran and that area. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating background for what's going on now because it's about Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds wanting to do things their way and Western countries trying to get things done their way and why it didn't work and ended up uh, in a, a very bad way. And it sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? You know, what was interesting to me was that when Desert Queen, the Janet Wallach biography of uh, Gertrude Bell came out, almost simultaneously, another book about Gertrude Bell came out by Georgina Howell called um, Queen of the De Gertrude Bell, Queen of the Desert, Shaper of Nations. And, and because I was so fascinated with Gertrude Bell, I, ha I read both of them, and they're both, you know, there's some overlap, of course, but they just help round out this amazing woman. And we just don't get, who, who many of us never heard of, who actually drew the boundaries of present-day Iraq. I mean, that's what she did. She took a pencil and drew it and picked who the first king would be, who was a minor desert sheikh before she <laughs> elevated him to that position. And, and he was a minor desert sheikh who had never lived in Iraq, the country that they were appointing him as king. Oh, I didn't remember that good, good He actually point. was primarily Saudi and, a Sir and Syrian in terms of his geographic background. He had never stepped foot in the country they were going to call Iraq. And and the other, what I another thing that um, Tom, I think you'll be interested in this is that Penguin Press is bringing out or has brought out um, a collection of Gertrude Bell's own writings. I'll I'll bring it in um, next time so you can see that because it might be fun to read that as well. I also just saw on the. Uh cut rate table at third place books Lawrence in Arabia which was another recent book that yes. also yes. overlaps yeah Tom did you read Lawrence in Arabia I did not uh, I saw the movie no no that's you saw Lawrence, Lawrence of, Arabia. of Arabia yes but you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah right okay. <laughs> I, I, I know okay. his story but I haven't written the book one read the, the book one of the reasons I think since you like nonfiction so much and you like that kind of political kind of stuff. So what this does with T.E. Lawrence is really place him in context with the other young men who were there at that time. And it just really, I, I just thought it, and Steve, you, you read it too, right? Lawrence in Arabia? Mm -hmm. No, I'd like to. It just broadens your understanding of it by giving things even more context than we would then we have it's a wonderful it's it's a wonderful book I read the seven pillars of wisdom and a couple other books about Lawrence well and particularly to understand the relationship between Gertrude Bell and Lawrence they knew each other quite well right. and interacted a great deal right. but they were entirely 
different people and had different views of how things should happen. Yes. She kind of got written out of the movie, didn't she? And her whole influence was written out of that whole history. That's surprising that a woman would be written out when she had an influential position, right? But there's a, but there's a, there's a new movie called Queen of the Desert based on this biography with Nicole Kidman playing Gertrude Bell. Who else is taking us somewhere? Taking us to Monet's garden? I'm taking you to Monet's garden. Uh, this is Monet's garden through the seasons at Giverne by Vivian Russell. She first established her creds by writing uh, about the gardens of the English Lake District. Um, she went to this area, stayed for a year, and recorded the garden in all four seasons and shares it in this book. It begins with another travel where Monet leaves Paris uh, because he has no money and he has to establish a new home somewhere else, so he heads to Normandy. No small task because this household will include eight children. Uh, and plus he has to have replaced a paint, so he rents this facility which was at the time um, probably a closed down apple orchard. And over the next 43 years, transforms it into his finest work of art, which is still alive, vigorous, growing today, and which we can all go and visit if we want to. Where are you taking us? This is uh, Bill Bryson's Sunburned Country. And uh, it's one of my favorite uh, armchair travel books. It could also uh, be considered light summer reading because it is kind of light in its context. But it's a great, um, it, it's classic, classic um, Bill Bryson-esque, the whole, uh, the whole, the way he approaches Australia. Australia, I've been to Australia a couple of times. Uh, Kathy and I really enjoy the country, the people, and not only that, they have good coffee, which is really important. <laughs> but I presume they have good gardens too. They have wonderful gardens as well. But you know, uh, following up on the theme that uh, was talked about earlier, uh, Bill Bryson always has issues when he's traveling. He always worries about a lot of stuff. So what he says here is, as, as you can imagine, I was particularly attracted to all those things that might hurt me, uh, which in Australia context is practically everything. Uh, it really is the most extraordinary lethal country. Naturally, they play down the fact that every time you set your foot on the ground, you're likely to, something's likely, likely to jump on your ankle. Thus, my guidebook blandly observed that only 14 species of Australian steaks are seriously lethal. So, um, I'm Roz, I have more Australia, New Zealand. So, we have Nancy's book, Book Less to Go, and it's kind of our Bible for we're going to go somewhere, get some suggestions. So, that's probably how I came up with these. They're both in that book. So, we're going to New Zealand first, and I read Come on Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All. I love the title. I love the book. It is uh, nonfiction, actually. It's kind of a memoir. It's written by a young woman who was from Boston area. She was a PhD student, and she didn't know what she wanted to do with her PhD, and so she got a fellowship to go to Melbourne. So she went to Australia, and while she was there, she took a little vacation to New Zealand, and she met a Maori man and fell in love and they were from completely different backgrounds. He was a tradesman, a, you know, an indigenous family. And so there's a lot of history in the book about this, about, this is what the Maori people said to the white 
explorers that were coming to the very northern tip of New Zealand. And then we uh, spent a couple of weeks in Australia also, and I decided we should go to Tasmania and be different, so we did. So this book is by Richard Flanagan, who recently won the, what, the National Book Award. Um, this is called Wanting, and it's in Nancy's book in a section about uh, exploring Northwest Passage, I think, which is what the end of the book is about, but what fascinated me was the beginning of the book because it's about Sir John Franklin, who was the governor of Tasmania way back when it was a penal colony. It's fiction, but he's using all the real people who were in power and who were uh, running the country. And when we stayed there in kind of a quaint hotel in the dining room, there were drawings of every person in this book all around the walls. It was wonderful. Richard Flanagan is a wonderful, wonderful Australian writer, and um, and his books are never they're never easy reading. I mean, they're never they deal with really tough subjects. Um, there's one called I think my favorite is Death of a River Guide um, that he wrote. But what I I you know these explorers that's another thing that we don't give enough credit to the bravery of these explorers who set off to that terra incognita and and Sir John Franklin um, as Ross said when his um, boat when his ship disappeared and you know presumed all the men were missing the the saying that went around um, England about that was um, first they ate the food then they ate their boots then they ate each other because that was the awful end that was, um, that was guessed at for them. But there's a wonderful, wonderful, oh, Roz, you have got to read this book. It's called English Passengers, and it's by Matthew Neal, K-N-E-A-L-E, and it's about a group of travelers by ship going from England to um, colonize Australia. Y you know, if, you, if you're interested in like raising your blood pressure about the treatment <laughs> of the indigenous people um, in, in uh, Australia and New Zealand, English Passengers is absolutely wonderful. Neil, K-N-E-A-L-E. -E. You know what's interesting to me about all these books and these trips, I've been getting ready to do uh, another class on interviewing and the history of interviewing. Interviews in the 1800s and the 1850s up to the 1920s completely discounted in journalism as what do we want to hear these self-serving people spout off about what they think is important. The only thing that matters is the correspondent in the field telling us what they saw. That's the only legitimate form of, of reportage. That's what established a lot of journalism in the 1800s and up to now. And that's what all these books are. These books are all about that person seeing it. Even O'Hanlon, right? It's all about reportage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we could talk about, uh, about um, travel in books sort of endlessly because, because, again, you can do historical fiction, you can do just contemporary books set in different countries. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, I think, that for me makes reading so special is that no matter what your life is you can go other places and be other people and and do anything you want via books find <laughs> us on facebook and twitter at the
Find us at thatstackofbooks.com. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We'll put some of these books up on the Facebook page so you can see what they were. Thank you all. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an episode we recorded at Town Hall. If you weren't able to attend that appearance, well, you can hear it. We talked with the author Jason Schmidt about his memoir, A List of Things That Didn't Kill Me. We told some literary jokes. We played a few games. And Nancy Pearl answered folks' questions about what books they should read next. So that'll be the next time we're with you from Town Hall. And put on your calendar October 18th. We'll be back at Town Hall with a language show, a show about grammar, a show about puns. Hope you'll enjoy that. October 18th at 6.30 after the Seahawks game, so do not worry. We'll be at Town Hall. You can buy tickets. We hope to see you there. And, of course, we'll still be exploring that stack of books with you. I'm Steve Shear. Thanks for listening. Happy reading.